Welcome to this Frequency Matters podcast. I'm Pat Hindle, and today we're going to cover a very interesting millimeter wave technology called holographic beamforming. Here to discuss this with me is Eric Black, CTO at Pivotal Comware, and also Alex Katko, VP of Engineering at Pivotal Comware. Welcome, guys. Thanks for having us, Pat. Great to be here. So maybe you can both just tell me a little bit about your backgrounds before Pivotal. Maybe, uh, Eric, you can start off. My story is kind of a, a twisted one. Uh, going through a couple of topsy-turvy turns to get to where I'm at now. I started out uh, actually in the United States Air Force, uh, did four years there, um, figured out I really didn't want to dig ditches for a living, you know, decided I really needed to get a college degree, and uh, you know, happily things went well, ended up with a PhD from Carnegie Mellon, really focused in kind of the optics world, working a little bit as a postdoc at Carnegie Mellon and uh, Boeing Research and technology came along looking to recruit some smart kids, I think was the quote that they were, they were using. And I was like, okay, I'm a smart kid. Maybe I want to work in Washington, which is kind of where I'm from originally. So hired in. Uh, and it was one of those weird recruiting things where they, they, they had a job, but they didn't know where. So I ended up working in the phased ray systems group, Boeing Research and Technology, learning about kind of the RF universe, which was not a, that big of a step from the optics world that I was used to. So I, I have this kind of odd mix of radio frequency, microwave training, along with that kind of optics viewpoint. So spent a bunch of time working on phased arrays and learning about the, the puts and takes of them, what makes them strong, what places where they struggle. Um, and I remember watching a defense grade phased array just melt itself down on a test platform when the tech hooked up the power supplies in the wrong order and that, you know, a couple million dollars later, um, I, I was like, there has to be a better way to do this, <laughs> to, to, to beam form microwaves into space without needing to, you know, come up with really crazy objects. So the millimeter wave opportunity was kind of on the horizon. Uh, we were starting to talk about it in the 5G space and uh, it was pretty clear they're going to need beamforming, and the phased rays were kind of the primary approach. And I was thinking to myself, this is doomed. So we, I had an interesting opportunity come up uh, to work for an organization called Intellectual Ventures. Uh, specifically, they have this group within them called the Invention Science Fund, um, which takes these technology bets on really nascent early stage things. They were doing research on this stuff called metamaterials and trying to find practical applications for it. And that was kind of my entrance there, right? It's like, okay, well, we're thinking about using this for beamforming. What can we do this with? And uh, at that point, Kymeta was already a company and working on doing uh, SATCOM applications of it. And we were real interested in the terrestrial space. So yeah, I, I met Alex day one at uh, IV there. <laughs> we both hired in on the same day. So I, you know, we, we went to work driving the, the research forward to try and turn this into a commercially useful application of metamaterials, not just a fun science project. Um, and Pivotal spin out, spun out of Intellectual Ventures a little later in uh, 2016, and I've been the CTO uh, ever since, uh, continuing to try and develop the technology and push it into the, the commercial space. Alex, how about you? You were there at the beginning too, right? I, I was, yeah. As Eric mentioned, we uh, came in the same day at IV, which was, uh, it was a lot of fun. <laughs> Great. Uh, Great learning experience to, uh, um, to pop in and really start building the team at the, just at one point in time. Um, prior to that, uh, I did my undergrad at Ohio State in RF, 
and then uh, did a little bit of work at uh, Northrop Grumman, realized that there was a ton of cool stuff that I could go and investigate that wasn't just um, turning the crank as, uh, you know, basically fresh out of college. Uh, so I went to grad school, I went to Duke. Uh, I studied men and materials there, which you can already see where this is going and where it intersects later. And while I was there, I really focused on nonlinear and uh, kind of device side metamaterials. So, you know, metamaterials has meant everything to everybody at some point in time. And uh, it, while I was working on it, I was really focused on let's pull in some practical devices. So we're not going to make negative index cloaking devices, all that crazy fun stuff, which is fun. But turns out that might be a little bit ways off from, uh, from a real application that can be commercialized. So my focus was really on let's let's try to figure out how to make these things controllable in a useful fashion. Uh, while doing that, uh, it turns out that one of the folks on my PhD committee uh, was a technical advisor for Ivy, and uh, he could see what Ivy was looking at doing as Kaimeta was in the process of spinning out. You know, they're building up the next teams, and uh, it it turns out it was just a, a direct fit of what I was doing. And what we really needed to bring in on the metamaterial science front to make stuff commercializable and real. He uh, referred me over to IB. Uh, so I came over there, started the same day as Eric. Gosh, eight years ago now, I think. And then uh, we... Uh, Has it been that long? <laughs> yeah, right. Um, so we, uh, we started working on all the different ways that you can turn an academic metamaterial technology into real beamforming. So, you know, everything from... Uh, making it completely reconfigurable, making sure that everything is sufficiently linear. You don't have any kind of uh, signal distortion as it passes through. Uh, you've got sufficient bandwidth coverage, all the fun challenges that every beam forming and every technology really has. Uh, that's what we focused on. So then, uh, gosh, about, yeah, a couple of years after that, we spun out as Pivotal. Uh, I worked initially in the uh, RF systems side of things. So I was the system architect uh, working through all of our early work and putting together, you know, anything from our demonstration and uh, prototype and proof of concept platforms to real platforms with customers right from the start, and then uh, moved into the VP of engineering role. So that's where I am today. Great. So uh, tell me about holographic beamforming, what it is, how it originated. I had mentioned that it kind of had its foundation in these metamaterials approaches where, like Alex said, they were playing around with negative refractive index and some of these more exotic phenomenon that do work. I mean, you can demonstrate them at kind of a single frequency from a particular point of view at an instant in time. And, you know, they were controversial for a while and now people have kind of explored their limits. And you know, it's like, come on, what, what can we really do with this? And so yeah, the work started in earnest to understand, look, what are they doing with metamaterials? They're shaping electromagnetic radiation. They're, they're deciding where to make photons move. Well, okay, uh, what can you do with that? Beamforming is the immediate obvious thing that jumps into my head at least. Um, and so a bunch of work went into building kind of what I would call the proto-HBF, uh, kind of what Kaimeta does with a liquid crystal-based approach. And like I said, they spun out successfully with that technique. So we were more interested in the terrestrial communication space, not so much the SATCOM space, which is where Kaimeta lives. Um, and so that has a bit of a different application space that has different requirements. For example, in SATCOM, you kind of just need to track a satellite as it moves across the sky. In 5G comms, you need to beam switch and multiplex users 
So that's a much faster and more aggressive switching requirement. I just I just saw a, a LinkedIn thing from a team at IBM talking about you know 32,000 beams in a second or something like that. And that's the kind of timing requirements you got to get. And so twisting a liquid crystal molecule that fast isn't a thing. So we worked hard on creating a component-based version of a holographic beam puller. So instead of a liquid crystal where we charge it and make it change its dielectric properties, we instead uh, use varactor diodes to kind of do a continuous variance in the, in the impedance of the device. And so that now happens at semiconductor speeds instead of you know, inertia of a molecule speeds. Um, so we had a very useful approach for being able to switch really fast and a bunch of antenna research later kind of figuring out the details of you know why why do you shape an element a certain way to get a certain radiation pattern or why do how do you feed these things to get efficient behavior out of them um, that's that's where a lot of our our core work shows up uh, especially on the efficiency front I, I like to track the academic papers where they kind of do similar things to holographic beamforms. You'll see these metasurface antennas. And you sit there and you calculate, okay, your antenna is that big and you've got that much gain. Okay, so your antenna efficiency is like 3%. Uh, that's, that's not a thing. Uh, it needs to be upwards of at least 40, 50% to, to be market viable. And, and that kind of work for pushing it all the way to that stage is, is where our, I think our, our key achievements lie. Yeah, I mean, it was uh, there was a lot of adaptation because when you you come at a fundamental science standpoint, you can think of oh, here's where I can place an element, and just switch a beam, you know, you turn an element on and off, that's great. Now you're reconfiguring a pattern. It turns out if you do that, then uh, you'll get a beam and it kind of points in the right direction. You'll have a terrible efficiency, as Eric said, and uh, you'll get a bunch of other beams that point in other directions, which generally isn't the best thing in the world usually don't want to be blasting energy in directions that you're not intending or receiving from other directions. Uh, so there's a, there's a lot of uh, reducing it to real practical um, art that was a lot of our early days work. When you take a look at all these different uh, semiconductor elements, you know, it turns out there's a pretty wide array of things that you can choose from. So uh, selecting the most appropriate architecture and components so that everything is scalable, everything really works together. You don't get any other kind of degradation. As Eric said, it can support the switching speeds that you need for 3GBP or any other application, but also really folding in, making something manufacturable. You don't wanna densely space the elements uh, any more than you need to, of course. So you, you, know, you get great control over a beam and then it costs a fortune because you've got a billion reactors that end up sitting on your device. So there's a, a lot of that reduction of practice is really what we focused on. That's really what, you know, we folded into our early work. Of course, it's an ongoing effort. We continue to make things cheaper, better, faster, more manufacturable. Uh, it's a big focus of uh, Eric's group as well as my group. And then uh, the biggest step after that came into, we've got a great beam forming technology. Now, what do we do with it? We have to turn it into a product because we can go out and sell a beam former, and that's certainly one viable business model. Uh, but we were a lot more interested in creating systems and products. Uh, if you go out and talk about, hey, we have a different beamformer, it's not a phased array, uh, then the next question that somebody will ask you is, okay, well, can you put a beamformer down and made it up to my modem? And the answer is, well, no, there has to be a lot of other stuff that sits in between it because beamforming itself is 
you have to really compartmentalize what beamforming means versus the entire R front end and then the entire transceiver. Uh, so a lot of the other work that we've been doing is really on the system integration front of getting beam, holographic beamforming integrated into a front end, then a transceiver, and then into a full system and then into a full product. <laughs> I think we did a better job answering the second half of the question about <laughs> where did it originate, not so much on what is an HBF exactly still. Unfortunately, the level of detail over a, a verbal medium is a little hard to, to fully describe an HBF, but I have a couple of analogies that uh, you know, our, the savvy microwave community probably will immediately grasp. So if you imagine a waveguide, a conventional four-wall metallic guiding structure for sending an electromagnetic wave down it, uh, most people are familiar with kind of the leaky wave antenna implementation where you take that rectangular waveguide and you put slots in it in just the right places and that will form a beam in a particular direction. And it has all the usual leaky wave properties where the beam steers a little bit with frequency. And by choosing the slot positioning, you can point the beam in a different direction. Now, the problem with that approach is obvious. It's, it's twofold. One, the beam steers the frequency. We really don't want that for our application. Um, the other is you're kind of stuck. Once you cut the holes, that's that. So a holographic beam former is a way to take that kind of functional behavior kind of a leaky wave antenna approach and make it reconfigurable. We can open the slots in the waveguide where we want. And by doing that, we can synthesize the beam shape we want just by choosing which slots are opened and which ones are closed um, and which ones are somewhere in between. You actually do want grayscale to get that good beam shape and healthy looking side lobes and not have random beams pointing off in funny directions. And so that kind of at the, at the most abstract level, but you know, relevant to a microwave savvy audience is, is how I would describe a holographic beamformer. The reason it has that name is because the mathematics of how do you get that wave that's traveling inside the waveguide to look like the beam going in the direction you want? Well, the, the math behind that transformation is exactly optical holography, but applied in the RF domain. So that's where it gets its name, holographic beamformer. And so we've extended this, of course, to 2D arrays and you, know, you could go to 3D arrays if you're really feeling spicy, but that might be a, a little more fun than we want to have. So. I actually didn't know the origin of the name, so that was good that you went and covered that. So for intellectual ventures, all that uh, research that was done, it spun off Pivotal Comware, um, Kaimeta, who does satellite uh, applications, also um, Echodyne that does more radar sensor yep. applications, and I think Evolve, which does kind of body scanning security applications. Yep. Uh, those are certainly the, the four that many have heard about. Um, there's also Lumotive, uh, which does kind of an optical version of this technique. Um, so there it actually is more like, you know, holography <laughs> as people think of it. Uh, and then there is a, a wireless power entity out there that's just kind of getting started. So a lot of things became of that research. Yeah. So the same IP core is, is shared between us. And then we continue to develop our own IP cores that are kind of specialized into our domains. For some of the IP applications that I'm going to care about in comms, the radar people are just going to die. Right. So, right. <laughs> so how is this different from passive electronic scanned arrays? It is a passive electronically scanned array in the sense that uh, there's no amplifiers inside the HBF, right? The entire antenna reconfigures itself. There's, there is... DC bias of the reactor diode. So in that sense, there is some power, but there's no RF amplification provided. So it's a 
fully symmetric antenna in the sense of transmit and receive behaviors. You can treat it just like a horn. Um, there, there was a question yesterday on, on the, the live uh, discussion where uh, we were challenged on PIM. And Alex had a lot of fun being from the nonlinear universe <laughs> trying to prove that uh, PIM is not a thing. So, I mean, that's, that's maybe an interesting story there because you think about it, it's like, wait, these guys are putting diodes on an antenna to make it reconfigurable? That's not exactly the most linear component in history. Uh, <laughs> kind of actually by design, not linear. Um, and proving to ourselves that we didn't have a major issue there was a big thing. Yep. Yeah, it was, uh, it, as Eric says, it's definitely a lot of fun. Uh, it's pretty much the canonical example of a nonlinear component that you can use. Um, so we, we actually tested quite a few different types of devices. I mean, we, we've explored pretty much the full space from what's fully commercially available to what's coming out of R&D labs all over the place. You know, something that's just in a prototype off a wafer. Um, of all kinds of components. And uh, we, we did some early work uh, with a, a customer who was very interested in cellular, kind of, let's say, six, seven years ago, cellular frequencies, so 4G, sub-6 stuff. And uh, they're really interested in reconfigurable antennas because the comparison point there is not even to an electronically scanned antenna. It's not to a phased array. It's to a remote electrical tilt array, uh, which is a very different beast. And there, you know, the challenge is really about PIM or passive intermod, uh, because you're injecting very high power tones in a FDD system into an antenna, and there are probably some other antennas very close by. Uh, and just the nature of that system means that you can get passive intermodulation. So even if you have a bare metal antenna, uh, you can get intermod products that are coming back in and interfering with your receiver, causing an uh, interference rise. Uh, some people call it the rusty bolt effect because a rusty bolt that's too close and ill-placed is actually going to give you some intermod. Uh, so we, uh, we were working with this customer. Uh, we, could, we proved very quickly we could do a scannable antenna. Great. It's going to give you the reconfiguration that you want. But okay, now the biggest question is on PIM. Uh, so we, we actually went down and worked with them in their test lab. Uh, as we were, we kind of laid out all the antenna samples that we wanted to test there and then went into a room to plan out kind of the test strategy. Uh, and then uh, one of the techs came in and told us that, oh, sorry, it failed. Uh, and we're, we're slightly concerned because we had never <laughs> pumped nearly that much power into any of these devices before. So we were pretty sure he just fried it, uh, came back out, no smoke anywhere, no black marks on, the, on any of the PCBs. Uh, and it turns out when he said it failed, it failed the commercial grade test, uh, but it was actually doing pretty well. Uh, so PIM, you know, you, you need to be much under 100 dB of uh, intermod suppression. Uh, you know, typically you want to be down in the one minus 150 or even lower than that range. Uh, and we were somewhere in the minus 130, 140 range. Uh, so he was right. We failed the test, but it uh, it performed much better than we actually expected from a simulation and measurement back in the lab. So then we went back, did some more work, you know, figured out what was going on. And then that was a that. single unit it was cell. A single unit blew cell. Up with that yeah. much power. I was yeah. like, <laughs> two, two 20 watt tones running through that one unit cell. Yeah, I'm amazed that reactor didn't explode <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it it turned into a lot of analysis based on how very well that thing performed, and then you know a, a lot of work on how to make it perform even better, and uh, we got there. So we we made some antennas that operate in the sub six FDD bands. Uh, they'll pass a commercial pen test. 
even if you do the uncalibrated test where you're running two 40 watt tones through this antenna, uh, it'll pass. It'll be down under 150 dB down. Um, so it, it was a, a, a very, uh, let's say, nervous moment. Uh, the very first sample that we had at the customer that they tested without uh, the real test plan in place coming in and just letting us know, know that it had failed. Uh, but it actually turned out uh, to be a fantastic test. It gave us a lot of useful information to build on from there. My Great. favorite line is, I can't tell the difference between us and a horn antenna. <laughs> I can't. That's from great. a perspective, I can't tell the difference. Yep. I mean, going into 5G, you know, we uh, the PIM is very important for 4G and FDD 5G, uh, but it's not so much a thing for TDD systems up in millimeter wave. There, you, you have to worry about your EVM impact. Um, because, you know, whether it's a phased array system where you have a lot of amplifiers distributed everywhere, got to make sure they're well aligned, uh, both amplitude and phase. And then you still have a bunch of amplifiers sitting right near your elements. Uh, but also with holographic beamforming, having these diodes around, we knew we had kind of a head start because we could pass this ridiculous test for 4G. Uh, so we, we weren't super concerned about being able to do it at 5G. Uh, the most that we've been... Turns out that you can't really get 80 watt amplifiers extremely easily uh, up in millimeter wave. So we, we've done the best we can. And you know when we're passing 10 watt tones through these things, and as Eric says, it is literally indistinguishable from a horn. You know, your Delta EVM is down below 0.1%. It's down to measurement error. Uh, we're feeling pretty good about that. Turns yeah. out this is definitely gonna work for what we needed to do. Can imagine. So uh, what kind of bandwidth does holographic beamforming support? So this is where you start to see the differences between an active array antenna and a passive antenna. Um, so HBF set present will go to about 10% what we call instantaneous bandwidth. So that means I set a particular hologram on the array. And so the beam is going in a particular direction. And so if it's, say, 30 gigahertz, you got 3 giga bandwidth. Now, the fun part about having reactor diodes, well, what are reactor diodes usually used for in cellular antennas? They're used to tune the antenna. So we have an operational bandwidth, meaning if, I can, if I'm allowed to retune the hologram, I can shift the band of operation up or down about 10%, so kind of a 20% wide band that I can shift that center to. Um, so we haven't had any customer actually try to take advantage of that. We usually have just been fine with, for any cellular band, kind of 10% is fine. Uh, any, excuse me, TDD cellular band, 10% is fine. You know, I, I do come from the active phased array universe and the Fed side where it's like, okay, we need multi-octave phased arrays. And it's like, okay, well, if that's really what you need, you're going to pay for that. <laughs> but it, it, you are able to achieve wider instantaneous bandwidths in an active array system. Uh, holographic beamform is going to stay in about the 10% range. And I don't see that you know, I've, I've done a lot of work with my team and I uh, to try and see if we can push it much farther. And there's just something about kind of a passive antenna array that, that locks you in there. That frequency steering effect of the passive array comes to get you at some point. But fortunately, I mean, for all the millimeter wave bands that we care about, 10% is plenty. Yeah, it's plenty. <laughs> yep. and it, it turns out that uh, that 10% is everything all in too. So, you know, you can you look at your beam squint, that's one thing, but Everything else that goes into making a, a real system uh, between the matching and, uh, and making sure that your elements are actually radiating efficiently across that full bandwidth. So that's kind of the all-in number is 10%. Any effect, whatever it is, you know, it's, it's great for the customer. You just tell them it's going to be 10%. You don't have to dive in the details of what's causing it. That's what it is. Yeah. <laughs>
Great. And so you already talked a little bit about power handling. How about that maximum power handling and linearity? Yeah. So we, uh, at anything that's really practical for, uh, for 5G, it's not a problem at all. Uh, you look at different classes of uh, base stations, uh, and at the end of the day, our beamforming is able to handle whatever power you put into it. So then it's really just a question of what, uh, what kind of PA is, is sitting there on the feed network for that beamforming. Uh, so if you wanted to put a 10 watt amp there, then we'd be fine. We wouldn't have any EVM degradation. Of course, then you're paying for a 10 watt amp, and then uh, you're getting to a pretty high power class base station which is fine if, if you need that in a particular application, if you're shooting for some of the real early discussion around millimeter wave was all about how do we get up above 70 dBm on a base station? And uh, people aren't really making those quite as much uh, for millimeter wave, but if somebody wanted to, we'd be perfectly happy to do so. So, you know, typically we'll operate more in, uh, in kind of a lower Gino B class or even down to uh, like a CP or a handset, that sort of thing where your ERP levels are, are really down in the 50 dBm or below. And at those range, we have, we have no problem. You can't see any difference. Uh, really, then it goes down to the, the modem and how well it's able to, uh, uh, to handle the peak to average ratio for the actual waveform itself. And then it turns into kind of your standard uh, PA design techniques. Do you use a Doherty, whatever class amp you use? Do you stick digital pre-distortion in front of it? Um, all that stuff is perfectly valid. We've, we've done all that with uh, holographic beam forming. It all works perfectly great. End of the day, the HBF doesn't end up being the limiting factor in your linearity. Well, it's great too. It allows the customer to pick their own PA so they can get the most efficient PA for the frequency that they're using. Yep. So how does holographic beam forming compare to an equivalent phased array? So I think the, the biggest difference that people will notice is the DC power draw. Um, so the PA is the PA, right? Um, whether you do a lot of dispersed silicon PAs operating at some efficiency or one big GAN or gas PA operating at a similar efficiency. I mean, it's not really, there's no factors of two hanging out in there. It's, it's you know, tens to 20% usually. Um, so then it really boils down to what's the rest of the beam forming architecture cost you from power point of view? And this is actually one of the most exciting things to me, because like I said, I, I watched that phased array meltdown uh, in my former <laughs> life. Uh, I can power an HBF array with an excess of a thousand radiators on it off of a USB plug. Wow. Because the elements are turned on and off by reverse biasing of reactor diode and reverse biasing of reactor diode is nanoamps. Um, the control ASICs that we use to do the orchestration and actually apply the bias, which can be as high as 20 volts um, to reverse bias the diode fully. Very low power architecture. It's actually purpose built. We, we literally, we, it was weird because most uh, kind of power or high voltage drivers also do a bunch of current. And I don't need that to, to push a diode. And so we actually had an impedance optimized ASIC for us built uh, that we use in all of our arrays. It powers about 25 reactor diodes each. And that architecture, it's just so, <laughs> I just, I marvel at it. It's like, wait, I'm, I'm forming a beam and I'm using a USB plug. Uh, you know, it's, it's when I hook up the stupid PA that all of a sudden I need a piece of your power supply. But, uh, you know, it's kind of life when you want to throw power around. So I think that's the biggest difference that people really notice between an HBF and a conventional active phased array implementation. 
You don't really see passive phased arrays because of the phase shifter losses are really difficult to overwhelm. Um, whereas the HBF architecture kind of it doesn't it doesn't use any phase shifters to begin with. Um, it's just architecturally works a little better in that sense. Um, Beam width wise, I mean, it's exactly what you'd expect. I mean, people often ask me like, what, what size array does what? And I'm like, go pull out your Bolanus textbook. Um, your array size will tell you the beam width. There's no magic, you know, there were some early claims in the metamaterial space from non-antenna engineers who didn't actually understand that, no, you can't treat free space as being a dielectric medium of two. Uh, <laughs> that's cheating. <laughs> so, uh, you know, once you get down to earth, it, it is an, an array antenna, it obeys all the normal laws of physics. Um, so beam width and gain that's achievable theoretically and side lobe behavior is based off of your taper, just like any other array antenna. Um, so you don't see huge differences there. Um, you know, so you, if you want a particular gain, you're gonna need a particular size antenna. Um, and then it's just how, how beefy do you wanna put the PA behind it for an EIRP design point or, um, you know, if you're sizing your array size for receive sensitivity, same deal. So very similar in, in that sense. It's really that power number that makes a big difference. And that in turn drives the cost number in the same way, because you know, you're talking reactor diode per unit cell versus phase shifter micro PA reduced to a single silicon chip drives X elements kind of deal. Yep. Then the, uh, the other fun thing that we discovered pretty early on, which it's really nice to be able to exploit, especially in uh, some of our products make a really heavy use of it, is that phased arrays typically don't end up scanning anywhere near the horizon, right? And a lot of that just comes down to the both the antenna pattern of your element and of your array. And uh, holographic beamforming behaves a little bit different because we have uh, such a fine sampling uh, in a spatial sense of the elements that we can actually scan pretty much really down to the horizon. Uh, it gracefully transitions into an in-fire mode. So if you look at your uh, your amplitude envelope uh, across scan, you're probably not going to scan a phased array more than plus minus 60 degrees uh, from normal. But with HBF, you can actually go down to plus minus 80, 85, if you can tolerate a little bit more loss, even all the way down to 90 degrees. Uh, so that actually really matters in a lot of these uh, 5G applications uh, because it turns out if you're if you try to do the entire system design really, really need that 75 degrees, 80 degrees of scanning, uh, or you have to start deploying a ton more equipment. Yeah, definitely. The phased arrays, plus or minus 60 beyond that, they really lose a lot of power quickly. Uh, another term I think people get confused, um, how does massive MIMO compare to holographic beamforming? <laughs> uh, my crusade. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I've even heard holographic beamforming be called massive MIMO because some people will just say, if you have a lot of antenna elements, you're a massive MIMO system. Um, I you know, pedagogically de deny that being a thing. <laughs> um, it's really what distinguishes a, a MIMO system from any other type of antenna array is how many digital signal processing and RF chains do you have within the system, right? Is it two, is it four, is it eight, 16, 32, so forth and so on. I, I think most people kind of consider the line to be somewhere in the vicinity of eight to 16 RF and signal processing chains. If you're less than that, you're, you're a MIMO system, but you're not massive. Um, so even though I, I we've built antenna arrays with you know 2000 plus elements on them, I, we are not a massive MIMO system in that it is an analog beamforming technology and it will steer a beam or you can shape the beam, but it is still one radio signal 
from a digital signal processing point of view that's available. Now, um, obviously we can get to dual polarization, but I don't consider two radio chains to be massive MIMO at all. Um, and at millimeter wave, there really is no such thing as massive MIMO. Nobody's going to direct digitize anything at 28 gigahertz. Uh, I mean, is it achievable? Yes, but uh, is it economically useful? No. Um, now, obviously, once you get down to well under three gigahertz, that is a different proposition, right? Directly digital sampling, that kind of stuff is a much easier proposition. Still challenging, still a bit of a power hungry beast. It's kind of interesting. I, I, I didn't really appreciate digital to analog converters and analog to digital converters until I started studying MIMO and just how aggressive a power profile those things need to really keep up as sampling rate increases. So um, yeah, we, we are not a massive MIMO rate. Um, however, I do think we can support reasonable orders of MIMO. Um, and that, I mainly say that because of the power thing that I mentioned earlier, right? If I go buy off of eBay, and I do this pretty routinely, uh, competitor base station products that somebody broke and just wants to get out of their house or get out of their 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 warehouse that uh, you know they they accidentally dropped it in uh, and tear tear it apart. I'll find like one phased array at millimeter wave kind of hanging out in there, and I'm like, why just one? What if I? I mean, the object's huge. The array's like this. The object's huge. And you know they raised maybe one tenth of its surface area. What if we just had multiple HBFs all down the front face of this thing, and I can have each one have its own dedicated signal processing chain, dedicated analog drivers, and independently steered beams, and we just have the base station logic kind of sitting behind it, orchestrating the whole thing. Then you do get that kind of MIMO effect where every additional RF chain is a unique data link that has access to full frequency time resources. So you really are multiplying your, your multiplexing and, and reuse of that spectral resource that, I mean, oh my gosh, there's, there's huge battles every day. I mean, I'm sure you guys are well aware of the FAA, FCC stuff. <laughs> it's all <laughs> spectrum games. Yep. Um, so it's, it's very clear that, that spectral reuse is critical and you know, massive MIMO is one approach to doing that. I don't think it's really a thing at millimeter wave, at least not anytime soon. I, I'm sure technological advance will eventually get there, but at least for the time being in the millimeter wave and 60 gigahertz space, and I mean, I'm seeing 6G with 100 gig type thoughts, you're not gonna be doing direct digital beamforming. Instead, you'll be doing kind of analog beamforming with multiple arrays and um, getting your multiplexing from that. Great, well, I think we've covered a lot of ground. Can you give me some of your thoughts on the future of holographic beamforming? Where do you see the technology going? Oh, I kind of spoiled myself on my private <laughs> I, I mean, so right now we're, we're doing a lot in the repeater space uh, where you really absolutely must have that super low cost, super low power consumption architecture uh, because you want to stick repeaters in places that cellular equipment doesn't typically go, right? If you've got to, you know, replace a, a utility pole to put your gear up or you need to spend a fortune to get a new power drop installed, that's not really gonna be a good thing for, for deploying repeaters kind of in arbitrary locations. So I, I think we'll, we'll, HBF will continue to dominate that space really. In my head, I, I totally wanna see us get into the GNOB. And I, I, I rip apart those things and it's like, oh my gosh, look at this thing they built. And it's, an, it's a monster and it eats power for breakfast, lunch and dinner. 
um, what if we could draw the same amount of power, but have like eight apertures or 16 apertures and really get those multiplexing gains going. So, you know, you have environments like stadiums, for example, where, I mean, my goodness, the, the data hungry requirements in that, in, in that type of environment are just astounding. And it's just going to keep going, right? I mean, we're, we're, it is one of those things where we will find a way to consume two gigabits continuously per user. And, you know, everybody will be like, uh-oh, now what? <laughs> yeah. By the same token, I mean, the CPE space is it's ready and waiting for some much more power efficient beamformers. I mean, you, you go and look at these things and basically every CPE that you can go out and buy, it either has a couple of antennas, not an array. If it's down in the sub six range, might have a four element phased array uh, if you're up at millimeter wave, or it might have a pretty big beefy 256 element phased array. And that sucker is really what you need to close the use case for a lot of these indoor CPE applications, unless you're, you know, installing repeaters everywhere, which we're big fans of. Uh, but there are a lot of use cases where that, uh, where, you know, you can't really do that for whatever reason. Uh, and having the power efficient beamforming, especially on a CPE is just a killer. I mean, you, you look at what these CPEs need to do um, when, they're, when they're sitting inside of just a consumer's household. And you got to be able to put them anywhere you want them. So they have to have a very wide scanning range. Uh, they can't run hot enough that you burn your finger if you touch them. Uh, that's kind of a big deal, turns out. And uh, they got to be very, very low cost. So we're, we're in a great position on all of those metrics. I mean, that's really what holographic beamforming is all about. So Geno B, CP, we see us uh, getting into those in, uh, in the coming years. And then there's really the folding in kind of the entire system level view of things. Because if, if you go and look at whatever the standards or what any of the operators have done, what the traditional radio vendors are doing, and it's, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to disparage anyone, but it's, it's not very imaginative, right? You have your kind of traditional network nodes that are going out. You have your Geno beads replacing Eno beads. You still have your UEs and uh, that's pretty much it. So having this beamforming that you can place ubiquitously throughout the network allows you to put new types of network elements in. So it turns into really more of an overall system design where yes, we can absolutely be in the repeater space and the Geno B and the CPE and the handset and so on, all these elements that are already out there, but we're spending a fair amount of time right now on planning out what's next, right? You, you look at 5G and everyone started talking about 6G and uh, there's gotta be more to it than let's do the same thing, but at a higher frequency again. Great insights. You guys definitely have a bright future ahead of you. So uh, thank you very much, Eric and Alex, for taking the time to uh, talk to me today about holographic beamforming technology. We'll continue to uh, follow your progress and maybe hope to have you back for an update at some point. To our listeners, you can find more podcasts at podcast.microwavejournal.com. Thanks for listening today.